0: So I started contemplating in uh, during May and June, well, very intensely during that time. The khandas—it's um, called khandas in Pali and skandas in Sanskrit—and the khandas or skandas are body, your perceptions, your feelings, your mind, and your consciousness. This is what we watch in Vipassana meditation is really tune in, feel deeply, and look at your body, your perceptions, your feelings, your mind, and your consciousness, and how these different things connect together, how they relate together. And essentially, the way that when we experience the khandhas from moment to moment, we experience the body perceptions, the feelings, the mind, and the consciousness, and all the aggregates, as they interact together, we experience them as our self, or the self, the one who we perceive to be who we are. And so what we're going to do this evening is to look at The khandas individually, and how they're connected together, and how the, especially how the sense of self, the sense of I, the sense of me, the ego manifests as a as a result of the integration or the interaction of the different khandas, the skandhas. Okay, so we're going to start with the body to begin with. In Asia, the view of the body, the attitude towards the body, is less than positive. Frequently, the way they look at the body is um, in a more negative light where, you know, it's there you have to live with it, but it would be a whole lot better if you didn't, kind of attitude. And, um, There's not a a great deal of, especially in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, you feel this very, very strongly, um, very much care or attention given to the body, nor the um, encouragement to develop a very positive relationship with it. Thus, you find a lot of pretty physically sick monks in many ways. I mean, I shouldn't talk this retreat, you know, having the cold that I have. but. It's. Um, I have to give you one example. Talking about medicine, at one monastery that I was staying in, the lay people would come with Western medicines and put them all in a a large basket because there they're used to like the ancient herbal medicines, but they think, "Wow, Western medicine! This must be good stuff." <laughs> so they'll pass. They'll, the monks will form a circle and they'll pass. The basket around, the monks will take out all these different kinds of medicines (laughs) and put them in their bag you know, and use them like it's a really good idea, you know, and without very much um, without very much distinction as to what they're really doing or what kind of effect it's having upon their body. And you see it in many, many different ways where the view of the body is it's, it's not trying to develop necessarily a very harmonious relationship with the physical form. For instance, in Thailand, in the monasteries, we weren't allowed to do any kind of yoga or tai chi or anything like that because it was seen as being a way of beautifying the body. And the body is not to be beautified, because the body is a filthy mess of organs and blood and many other things. And I mean, there's one way to look at the body. You can also look at it as you know, incredible creation that keeps us alive for 70 or 80 years despite what we might do to it sometimes. You know, so as we look at and as we relate to the body in the context of what we're doing here and certainly a holistic fashion, there's a movement that goes on here in in the West and in America where we try to look at the body as uh, more as a vehicle for something to take care of you know, and giving it the proper kinds of food, having the the proper exercise and all of that, that feels appropriate for your body and that makes it function in the most optimal way. And this is very, very important because it's hard to be, it becomes increasingly difficult to be very, very mindful when your body starts to weaken and to get sick. So you want to keep the body as strong as possible because the mind stays strong. The Buddha would oftentimes um, um, say that it's good to start to meditate, it's good to ordain when you're young. He would give the example of when your hair is jet black, when you're still young, then get into it, do it. Don't wait, 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 because your body starts to weaken after a while. And it makes it more difficult to use the force of mindfulness because of the sickness of the body. So one way of looking at the body is that the body is our temple, and it houses the soul. It houses our soul. We come into an incarnation into this lifetime. We have this body to honor the body, to keep it clean, and to keep it in good order, as you would keep your a temple or a place of worship in good order, to take care of it that way. In some of my work with Aaron, what we've been looking at is to see how the ego is inherent in the five khandhas, the five skandhas. That is, he said, that the ego is present in the body, in the perceptions, in the feeling, in the mind, and in the consciousness we look at how ego might be inherent in our body, well, a good example is, for instance, when we're in a crowded situation, like everybody trying to get into the bathroom at one time, here in the, in the dormitory. You know? so you're in there, you're, the door is closed, and you're the only one for the time being, next to the sinks, and the light is on, and you're looking in the mirror. You know, and sometimes when we look in the mirror, we tend to admire <laughs> ourselves. I mean, this is something about looking in the mirror. I mean, that's what mirrors are for, is to look at yourself. Otherwise, mirrors wouldn't exist, right? But here we are, getting ready to shave or wash or whatever, and we find ourselves glowing into our own eyes. You know, And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the door latch. You know. <laughs> and then you look down. <laughs> <laughs> Wash your face. Did he see me? I hope he didn't see me. <laughs> the teacher is not supposed to have an ego, certainly. <laughs> they must think that I look in the mirror all of the time. You know, you start to see, the, you know, the ego arise in relation to your body. You know, there's an attachment to the body in that moment. And the ego is inherent in that body and in that attachment in that moment. You know, I noticed also when I was, this retreat especially, when I was coming up the steps, you know, before I come to the meditation, hall put my hair like this, you know, make sure it's smooth a little bit. I saw myself each time when I came up, it was almost like an automatic response to cover the bald spots a little bit better, you know. Or you might might be going a little bit gray, you know, so you want to put some darkening in your hair so that the aging process just doesn't show. You know, so you need to look at all of it. I mean, I don't do that. I don't have to, yet. <laughs> but to see that in, when you start looking at how you relate to your body, that the ego can, is inherent in the body itself. You know, it might be how you dress, you know, needing more clothes or whatever it is to create, to hold up an image of oneself, to pay attention of how in this first kanda of the body that the ego can be present. So our body has sense bases, because we have a body, we have eyes as one of the sense bases. We have ears so we can hear, we have a nose so we can smell, we have a mouth so that we can taste. We have a body, so we can feel tactile sensations. And in Dharma, in the Eastern Dharma, Eastern philosophy, way of looking at oneself, the mind is the other, is a sixth sense. The sixth sense door. So we call all of these senses sense doors, and we receive sense impressions through our sense doors. And the way that We work with the vipassana is, as you become quiet, you start to see moment to moment the arising at these different sense doors. So there's the body, kind of the body, and then perception arises. And the way that perception arises is that, okay, you're, you're sitting and you have an ear, the ear base, and then there is an object such as a sound. And the third thing that's present is consciousness. So you have the sense door the ear, you have the sense object, which is the sound, and you have the third thing, which is consciousness. And the one, so in the fifth, the fifth kanda, consciousness is present in that moment. If you're dead, you know, you don't have the consciousness, you can't hear the sound. But you have those three things and the perception arises. Okay, now to give you... An example of how ego can arise in perception, which is our second kanda, is you're sitting in the hall here, and we're well into the sitting, and you're sitting and you're getting deeper, finally. Your mind's starting to quieten down, getting a little quieter, it's a little quieter. And then you hear the door latch. And in the moment, there's a sound. And then your mind says, who's coming in late? (laughs) Don't they know they're not supposed to come in late? The meditation already started. Or you start to, your mind, there's contact at the ear. There's a sound, there's consciousness, there's contact there. And then you start to feel a feeling of annoyance inside of your mind from that contact. The perception arises. So inherent in the perception is the subject object relationship of yourself and somebody else. The sense of I, the sense of me, self ego becomes stronger and solidifies the self in consciousness as it makes an awareness with the sound, as it arises in your mind. But it's just a sound, you know, it's if you can when it arises, if you're just hearing, hearing, hearing as a sound, and don't let it go on further. in other words, your mind is not grasping hold of it, but just aware as a sound, just the sound as it sound, then it doesn't move more deeply into grasping and into suffering because of the sense of You know, somebody is bothering me. My meditation is interrupted by this sound. And to see how easily duality starts to come into play when the mind grasps hold of something and it starts giving rise to these feelings, these unpleasant feelings within the mind. You know, sometimes to see at home how Ego might be inherent in a perception, like when your phone rings, you know. I remember when, when I was younger, we didn't have a phone in my house, you know. So there was really, there was not a whole lot of conditioning around a phone, because we didn't have one. I remember I, would, I was visiting a friend who lived down the street one time, and um, her phone rang. And her phone rang, and she she was in one room, and the phone was in another room, and she flew. She just flew off of the chair and ran into the other room to pick up the phone. She did it, and I could not wonder why she did that, you know? And, you know, why she could have such a response to the phone ringing that she would rush to answer the phone. You know, it's like if somebody, you know, called you or wanted to talk with you, would you race over there? You know, you know, what do you want? You wouldn't. You know, you'd probably walk over and, and ask the person what it is that they want. But as soon as the phone rang, she was gone, you know. And then it's happened a couple of times that, I, as I knew her. It started to happen, and I started to see how much anxiety there was about the phone, you know, and answering the phone. You know, and how inherent in the perception that... It stimulates all these kinds of internal feelings within ourself that we can relate you know, to the sense of self. You know, is it for me? Is it for somebody else? You know, is it a boy calling me? Is it a date? You know, whatever might get you know, wrapped around that. You might have a business of your own. You're starting a business, and in order for the business to go, the phone's got to ring. You know, so you wait and wait and wait, maybe unconsciously to some degree, but you wait and wait and wait for the phone to ring. Then it rings, yes, can I help you? You know, you you feel anxious, you know, there's, there's a sound. And then with that, there's something, there's not just the sound, but there's some part of you that is very invested and affected by that perception in that moment. Let's take another perception. Let's take an example the perception of seeing, the visual perception. And part of our retreat here is being silent. And you've been very good about that, about the silence. Sometimes in some retreats, they're not so much into the silence, especially, it seems like, the shorter retreats, like the weekend retreats. Um, Sometimes people come to weekend retreats like commuters. You know, they kind of drive in and unpack their bags and then they come up to the meditation hall and we do some meditation and they kind of race around a little bit and then the other weekend they drive off again. You know, kind of like the weekend commuter retreat. And, but we still tried to maintain the silence. And one time I was leading a retreat like this and um, you know, I emphasized the silence and I went into the dining hall where the tea urn is. And I was just going to get a cup of tea and there are these two people there chewing the fat or <laughs> whatever it was that they were doing there. And so as I approached, one of them saw me, you know, and she goes, She's <laughs> Both of them saw me, and all of a sudden they weren't talking, they weren't even looking at each other. They were just looking straight ahead, you know. So in that moment, they saw me, there was contact, and that's what happens, At one of the sense bases, there's contact, okay? So they was, they, there was their eye, they, they saw me, they was there was consciousness, there's contact. From contact arises feeling. Feeling is another one of the khandas, body perceptions, feelings. The feeling that arose was unpleasant feeling within the mind. Here comes John. (laughs) We're supposed to be silent. Fear, feelings of fear or anxiousness, whatever, start to arise. I could just feel it. It was like it was a stillness, but it wasn't the kind of stillness that we a temporal here in meditation it was a different kind it was like a frozen a frozen stillness so to speak in that okay fear started to arise so there's contact there's feeling and then from that feeling one goes into further mind state so the mind is another one uh, another uh, of the khandhas in this particular instance it was fear that was ar- arising it was breaking the silence, fear and the feeling that we're caught, you know, we did something wrong, we're caught. And I started, it's very interesting, this retreat, and I think there was it's a, because of a process that's been happening for me a while now, is that I'm getting in touch with a lot of childhood memories. And I remember very, very vividly, when I was in the first grade. Um, And uh, I was just trying to find my way around the world, actually. And I have a sister who's two years older than me, she was in the third grade. And it was, we were in the lunchroom. And it was after lunch, and I I had some food on my hands, so my sister took me over to the water fountain to help me to clean my hands in the water fountain. Which is not unreasonable considering it probably wouldn't have been appropriate for my sister to take me into the girls' room to clean my hand, you know, or for her to go into the boys' room to clean my hand. So we were doing it at the water fountain. And then the sixth grade teacher, Mr. Speed, I was in my shirt, this shout, what are you doing? And he walks over really mad and he says, don't you know you're not supposed to wash your hands in the water fountain? You know, and I looked at my sister. I looked at him, I looked at my sister and I started to cry. You know, and I started to cry. I felt so awful inside. I did something wrong, you know, and I was in pieces. I mean, it's one thing for your mother to say, to yell at you, you know, not to do something because you know her. You know, but the 6th grade teacher, you got 5 grades before you even meet him. Yeah. You know, and all of a sudden he's coming down heavy on you, you know. Like you shouldn't do this. And gosh, you know, what I do wrong. It's a terrible feeling inside that I had done something wrong. It was something that I had made a mistake. Uh, later in school, it was I think around the f- I started in the 4th grade or the fifth grade, started playing the saxophone and was taking lessons with the teacher who was also the band leader, like in later grades, and he was a pretty uptight guy to begin with. Um, And I remember he was, was, there were three of us in learning the saxophone together, and I wasn't very good at it. I just, you know, I had a hard time with the saxophone. I had a lot, hard time with a lot of things in school, but the, fax- the saxophone was, was one of them. And I played a wrong note. I must have played a wrong note a few different times. And this, he just goes, boom, and he punches me in the stomach. I, go, Whoa! I mean, I almost lost my wind. He really punched me pretty hard in the stomach, you know. And, Oh, my God, you know, I did it wrong again. I'm going to have a hard time in life. <laughs> and this keeps going on the way that it is, you know. And things kept getting reinforced, you know, that I was not good enough. You know I was, I was doing something wrong here. I mean, how would it be if you came into the interviews
1: <laughs> you know,
0: and I asked you how the breath was? And you said you had a hard time following it. I pushed you in the stomach. (laughs) How would you like that? I wouldn't have many customers, I don't think, after a while. remember another time <laughs> where I was sitting here and I was sniffling and I was sniffling and all of a sudden I had, I remember this time when I was young and I was playing at my friend's house and we were pretty small. And then I used to eat a lot of dairy, so I used to be a lot of mucus. <laughs> And I would have a continual run out of my nose during the wintertime. And so one time my friend's father came home, and I, I guess he wasn't in a great mood, you know, so he came home, and we were out there playing, and we are running around, and I go, Hiya, Mr. Blyman! And he looks at me, and the snot was kind of coming out. He says, He goes, You snot-nosed kids! Are you rotten kids! Uh, and I think he was doing it half and joking, but I wasn't sure. You know? <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what to make of it, you know. And so, and so, again, I wasn't quite sure whether I was doing the right thing or whether I was appearing the right way, you know. And there were lots of, I realized there were lots of experiences like that. You know, like when you were young and were growing up, that We have these experiences, and the experience says back to us that um, I'm not good enough, or I'm not who I should be. And with that can come very, very deep feelings of unworthiness inside of ourselves. And that at the bottom of many of our of our fears, the fears that we have, is this very deep-seated feeling of unworthiness inside. It's almost like, inherently, you know, we don't love ourselves. We can't love ourselves. And that there is a lot of self-judgment and shame and blame um, that we feel. And I think this is especially true for those of us who come from dysfunctional families, which is a lot of people, as we're discovering these days, and I see it a lot in the work that I do, and people, and as I talk with people and, you know, go into their lives, look at their lives, it becomes an, uh, um, increasingly clear um, how a lot of the way that we look at ourselves comes from the relationships that we have with adults in our life and you know if our parents had a difficult time which many of them did and they have a hard they had a difficult time appreciating and loving themselves um, and, they're, and they act from their pain and relate to us from their own pain that. Um, we, it gets passed on, we feel the same way about ourselves, that, you know, that we really were not totally loved, you know, and that we weren't totally good or who we were supposed to be, you know, or we didn't make our parents happy. They weren't happy and we didn't make them happy. And maybe we're responsible for not being, for not um, making them happy and for us not living in in a very pleasant and happy situation. Well, we don't like ourselves very much, we spend a lot of our time trying to make ourselves better and make ourselves more acceptable to people, especially, um, you know, to people who we want some positive feedback from for whatever reason. And I just spoke with a friend on the telephone uh, just before I came here, who I haven't seen for a while. And uh, she told me that she went on this diet, this special diet, um, a special food regime, wild one, you know. And she, her system went totally out of whack as she went on this special kind of diet. She didn't go into it in depth. I said to her, why did you do that? She says, to feel better about myself. You know, she wanted to feel better about her body and how she looked, so she went on this special kind of diet, you know, and kind of look at what is it inside of ourselves that makes us do these kinds of things to ourselves, you know, so that we feel better about ourselves, you know, and so that we'll look better to other people. When we don't feel fulfilled and happy, it's easy for us to be envious and jealous of other people. You know, how much of our envy, you know, we look at other people and the way that they are, how much of our envy of other people and our jealousy of other people comes out of this feeling of unworthiness inside ourselves? You know, we feel that people don't give us enough credit for who we are. You know, we, um, we want more recognition from other people. And all of this is because we don't feel all that great about ourselves inside, you know? So we need this constant reaffirming from other people that we are okay, you know? And um, that we're all right. And we spend a lot of time trying to get that approval, a lot of time and energy. You know, and this can be this very strong drive within ourselves. To be more. You know, we always have to be more. It's never okay that we are who we are. You know, but we have to be more. What is this drive inside of ourselves that makes us always feel that we have to be more? Or that we have to have more? What's going on inside our being that says, you know, do this. You know, do this and, you know, and then maybe, you know, you'll, you'll be acceptable. Maybe then you'll be loved. Maybe then, you know, you'll find some happiness and completion. The first thing is to first come to know this feeling of unworthiness. Start looking at it. It's really remarkable. You know, I mean, many of you may be aware of it already. We start getting down into the deeper inside yourself and start looking at the feeling of unworthiness. And then, how many, see, and look and see how many of our ego needs come from the feeling of unworthiness. And it's become increasingly aware of needing to be accepted by other people, to get attention, to get other people's attention, you know, to be right. You know, needing to be right. Where is that feeling of needing to be right in a debate, in a conversation with somebody? Where is that coming from inside of yourself? To be, to be known, you know, to be famous, whatever it might be. Where is all of these desires and these needs coming from? And something that you might try is looking, taking a day, Try doing it tomorrow. And look and see how many times your ego arises. How many times you get the feeling of ego needs. You have some, the ego has some needs, ego arises. You know, needing to impress somebody, even in subtle ways. And being in silence, you'll see it, you know. And needing to be recognized by other people, meaning to be acknowledged by other people. You know, in terms of th- you they you, you you need for them to see you, to acknowledge you in some way. You know, or to see how you're doing something, to see how you're you're walking. You know, or to see how you're sitting. You know, I mean it's, it comes in very very subtle ways and it all has to it all relates to self and to ego and to how it manifests in different ways. As we start to look at our ego needs, we start to get in touch with our desire system. This is crucial in terms of what we're doing here. Because desire comes out of ego and ego needs. We start to see how you know we need more we buy more clothes, you know, so that we look better, we get a new car. You know, so that we have a different image of ourselves, and find ourselves more accept- uh, ex- uh, acceptable. I, after I disrobed as a monk, um, I didn't have anything at that point, at all, zero. My mother had given everything away when I left. <laughs> after I left she didn't think I was coming back, she gave everything away, except couple of pair of underwear and an undershirt with a hole in it. That's all that I had in a guitar. That was the extent of my belongings. And so when I came back, um, I was teaching these three-month retreats at IMS, and somebody gave me a van at the end of a three-month retreat. It was a 1968 Dodge van. That's, that, that saw its days. I mean, it was, it was pretty patched up, and at first I didn't think I even wanted it because I thought I'd have so much trouble with it they it wouldn't be worth it. It cost me more money to repair it, but some people were there at the center. They fixed it up, got it running, and finally I drove it away. I, and I, I drove that for the last six years, but it was... Anybody who saw that van, um, it was not very beautiful. I mean, it had a certain beauty to me, because it lasted me six years, but whenever I would drive it around, I would park it in places where people couldn't see it, you know, at the end of the parking lot, you know, so they wouldn't know that it was mine, you know, and it was very embarrassing, you know, to pick somebody up for a date or something in the van, because it wasn't a way to impress people at all, not in in the least. And, um, you know, and for the last year, I, um, there was, came this stronger and stronger feeling, like, hey, you got to get a different car than this. This is not doing it, you know, (laughs) for for several reasons. (laughs) One of them is this thing didn't have any heat in it. And I, you know, in the middle of the winter, I would be driving with a blanket around me, (laughs) driving out, out to Hillsborough, where I live. So finally, you know, I was putting so much money into getting the van repaired that I decided to get a, another car and I did recently. Very recently I got a, um, a used but a very good Honda Accord, which feels like automotive heaven <laughs> <laughs> when I ride it, you know, but it was interesting to look and to see how much image there was around this thing that I drove. It got me to places, you know, it was functional, but it didn't look very good. And here in America, I noticed that a lot of people's images are based around their cars. It's very interesting because in Italy, it's around clothes. I visited Italy a couple of years ago, and everybody's dressed up. You know, I mean, it was like, even if you're poor, your mother and your father will spend every extra money they have to buy you designer clothes, nice clothes. Because that is the thing. That's the way that people judge each other, and who they are is by their clothes. You know, in America it's not like that. You know, America, we're very casual. It doesn't matter if you're a sweatshirt if you have a sweatshirt on, but you have got to be driving a nice car because that really makes the difference. You know, because people you know look at you, stop at a stoplight, and you look over and yeah, you know, all right, what do you got there? You know. <laughs> Usually, when I was driving in the van, (coughs) it was like, (laughs) this is what I got, kind of feeling, you know. I could just see how much ego there was in it, you know, and how, you know, to have another car might make one feel better. And it does. It does make one feel better. And part of the reason that it makes one feel better is because of the ego involvement in the situation. How about feeling fulfilled through ingesting things? There's a lot of addiction in our society. Food addiction, alcoholic addiction, drug addiction, substances. Why is there so much addiction in our society? Because many of us feel unfulfilled. There's this emptiness, there's this void inside of ourselves, you know, so taking in food is a way of allowing us to feel better inside you know feel more fulfilled taking alcohol or drugs is a way of feeling better inside and that there's pain this pain of inside of ourselves of of emptiness of of loneliness of loneliness of, of alienation that's there of unworthiness that's that's real pain inside and using Frequently and easily, one can use substances as a way of dulling the pain, you know, pushing the pain away, that we may feel. Sometimes people even get into meditation and yoga, into sadhana, as a way of looking um, at themselves or trying to feel more pure. You know, trying to have, create a more positive image of themselves, you know, by doing things which they perceive to be holy, in many different ways that that desire and unfulfillment and how we meet those desires can manifest. As we look at our ego needs and our desires, we start to understand the relationship between desire, frustration, and anger. And that is that when we have an ego need inside of ourselves, we have a desire, we want something, and we don't get what we want that is, our desires become frustrated in some way, then very easily the result of that is that we become irritated and angry inside. We become fearful that we're not going to get what we want, that we're going to remain unfulfilled inside of ourselves. This is craving, you know, and and the the Buddha said, He said, desire is the cause of suffering. He said, craving is the cause of suffering. Those were his most important words. That's what he realized in the morning of his enlightenment. He realized how deeply the desire and the wanting inside was the cause for suffering. And something that... I never realized where that desire was coming from. What I always did was I saw a desire. I've always been aware of desire, but I was never aware of where the desire was coming from. What is before the desire? Why is it that we desire? It's because in being a human and having body... Perceptions, feelings, having a mind, having a consciousness, all of that. And the ego manifesting and being inherent in each of those khandhas. The ego is inherent just in having a body. The ego is inherent just in having perceptions and seeing and tasting and feeling. It's inherent. It's in there. The propensity towards grasping and clinging is inherent within the perception itself that when you have a feeling of pleasantness or unpleasantness, that inherent almost within that feeling can be the tendency within the mind to grasp and to cling. And the reason that it, it's this way is because in being human and having a body and having the kind of perception network that we have in having the human feelings that we have, that this is the way that we get to look at ourselves, how we work, and what it is that causes suffering, and how to be released that from that suffering into the state where there is no suffering, the unconditioned. part of our fears, is that our desires will remain unfulfilled and that we will remain separate and unfulfilled alone. And this might be especially strong for people who are single in the world. It's interesting. and Being a monk, everybody is single. You know, you live in a society where it's a society of individuals and everybody is alone, except that you're, you have a sangha, as support, but you come out into the world and in the world it's a different way. In the world people couple up and form and go around in twos for the most part. And um, I've not been very successful in coupling up with someone. <laughs> you know, and it's been something that's been an ongoing issue inside of myself. And and so I've had to look at, especially lately, a lot of um, loneliness. And when I was a monk, you were alone a lot. It was a life of solitude. alone a lot. It's spent a lot of time alone. And it never bothered me at all. I never felt that I needed other people. And if I did, I always had enough people around that I could being in touch with it. I never, never really felt lonely. And then I came back into this society and I needed to learn what it was to be lonely, even being amongst many people and in a lot of interaction. And when we're, um, when there's a difference between aloneness and loneliness, okay, we, when we're born, we're born alone born into the world even though we're born through our mother and into a family we're still coming to the world alone and eventually we die alone too we die as you know as individuals we die alone loneliness is you know the this deeper thing inside of ourselves and you know of really feeling a kind of a sense of something missing inside and Looking at this, I see that loneliness can come from from two places. One place that loneliness can come from is that we fear intimacy. And the fear of intimacy is that we are not good enough. And therefore, in not being good enough, that we're not deserving of somebody else's love and somebody else's affection. And that can be one reason why we remain alone is because there is this fear that stems from the unworthiness inside of ourselves that we're not good enough. Another reason that there can be the loneliness or being alone is that we need to learn more about ourselves in the context of mm. being alone. and that. Being alone means that we have to get in touch with these lonely feelings inside of ourselves. We have to, you know, have to go deeper. It forces us to, you know, to look, okay, here's another weekend alone. You know, another weekend where I just feel this emptiness inside of ourselves and it pushes us inside. You know, to look at the feelings that are there. You know, the feeling of being apart, of being separate. The feeling of not feeling fulfilled within ourselves. It's interesting because every, every year I go up to Vermont and there's a woman who I've been working up there for a long time with. She's a psychic channeler. I go up there once a year for a reading. And in this last year when I went up there for a the reading, she said, one of the things that she said was, that you can't look outside of yourself for love anymore. You have to find the love within yourself. And this is true for many of us, that we can't look and we won't find the kind of love that we want outside of ourselves. The only place that we're going to find this kind of love and fulfillment that we all want is inside of ourselves. You know, part of what makes it difficult sometimes for us to feel our heart and to open to the love that's there is this inner attitude that we are undeserving of it or unworthy of being loved. So there has got to be this constant, constant reinforcement that we are lovable and that you know, it is possible to feel love and that we deserve love and can open ourselves to that love and that that love is inside of ourselves and that we can allow ourselves to feel it, that we truly are worthy of love. What else can we do with the feelings of unworthiness that we have inside. How can we work with this? The most important thing is to allow it to be uncovered, to get in touch with it. And that's what this mindfulness practice is doing for us. It's, it's bringing us deeper and deeper inside, and it's getting us in touch with the, the deeper feelings, the primordial feelings. This is very, very on the bottom very, very much on the bottom of the heart, so to speak, and what's there. And getting in touch with it, getting in touch with the feelings of unworthiness, and then allowing it to come up, allowing yourself to feel it. Oftentimes, the way that it comes up and the way that you feel it is frustration, anger, and pain. That's the way that it comes up. You start to feel it. Strong feelings. You know, feeling frustrated because you've wanted to love so much. You've wanted to be loved. I mean, this is, you know, this is so intrinsic and so important to human life. Love. You know, to feel love, to give love, to be love, to share in love. This is so important. You know, and our heart has not been receiving and getting the love to the degree that we need to get it, to feel it, to feel nourished by it. And so as a result of not feeling it the way that we need to feel it, there is frustration. There is anger that we haven't gotten what we, what we need. We haven't been given it. We haven't felt it for whatever reason. It's not always our parents' fault. You know, it's just that in embodied existence, what we're here to learn is to be able to get in deeper touch with it, the source of love within ourselves. That's our work. That's part of, what we're, that's part of what, why we're here. That's part of a lot of what brings people into Dharma. You know, is to, is to learn how to feel that love, and that truth within themselves. So, first thing is to uncover a lot of the deeper feelings of the frustration, the desire, the wanting, the yearning inside. And you start to see after a while that a lot of the, desire the desires that we have, start looking at the desires that are there. You start tracing them back. Go deeper, deeper behind the desire. Find the root of the desire. Go deeper within, to find where the desire is springing from within oneself. What is at the bottom of it? It's the ego's needs. The ego wants something. And allowing yourself to feel that. And then as you feel that, and other feelings start to come up, the frustration, the anger, the rage, whatever it might be, the irritation, the agitation, the restlessness, whatever it might be that comes up, and then keeping your heart open and opening the pain and allowing it to release, just allowing it all to come up, allow yourself to feel, feel it. Doing Metta meditation, loving kindness meditation, is very good for this because it gets you in touch with the heart, you know, and allows those feelings to come through. Forgiveness meditation, so very, very helpful here. You know, first, I spoke about forgiveness the other day, it's first just to, give, for, to forgive ourselves. We are just human, we are imperfect. We grew up in a family as a child, you know, in which we have very little to say, or little control over what happens. We're at the effect end of things, as I was at the water fountain. You're at the effect end, you see? And there's a lot that goes on, and it creates these feelings inside of you, you know, and there's a lot of negativity with the image of ourselves, you know, and the shame and the guilt and the judgment to release this stuff through self forgiveness. May I be happy, peaceful. May I be released from these negativities. May I be released from this judgment, from this shame, and from this guilt. You know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. Praying to God. If you have faith in God, God, please release me from this pain talking to God and asking God to release you from the pain so you can feel his love, so that you can feel the joy and the happiness and the fulfillment that you wish to experience. Someone came into an interview today and said that by saying, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be be free from suffering, that, that when he said that, rather than just may I be happy, peaceful, free from suffering, that he was able to get more in touch with his heart center, because he expanded this wish to everyone, and as he expanded this wish for happiness and joy and love to everyone, his heart started to expand. He started to feel his, his heart more. You know, so, and that's what, that's the way that we work. and we do the metta meditation, we start maybe with, may you I know, be happy, peaceful, free from suffering, start to expand it out to people that we love, you know, and gradually other people, even people that... We don't like, you know, that we want to include within our heart. Namkrali Baba, Maharaji, this Indian saint who lived in this century in India, he said one thing that sticks in my mind, he says, never leave someone out of your heart. Never leave somebody out of your heart. I've always remembered that. Never leave somebody out of your heart. When you see that you want to push somebody aside for whatever reason, they're annoying, you don't like them, you don't like the way they look, they bother you, you know, they put too much pressure on you, and you want to leave them out, just remember that. Never leave somebody out of your heart. So it forces you to include people in your heart. So you can't leave them out. So you have to keep being inclusive, inclusive, you know, to. Keep your heart open to all people and to all situations. You know, so that the love and the compassion can grow. So there's much, 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 much. I could go on here for a while with what these khandhas, exploring the khandhas and what they mean. And I will, in future retreats. I'll talk about it more because there's a lot of depth to go into in terms of looking at the compounds and how, how to work with them.